welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Summary. Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Dr. Tom Oakley, and he is CEO of Feedback PLC. So Tom joined Feedback PLC in 2019 and quickly recognized that the technology that drove its current services, Texrad and CADRAN, which we'll go into, had the potential to revolutionize the ways clinicians engage and communicate with each other, at which point Bleeper was born. So Bleeper is a medical imaging communications app that allows clinicians to view and share patient-specific data, images, notes, reports, etc., using any internet-connected device enabling control of patient cases when clinicians are on the go. A problem I know very well, Tom, so looking forward to getting into this with you. Um, so first of all, welcome. How are you doing? Yeah, really good. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. You're very welcome, sir. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Tom? Uh, from London. Nice. Whereabouts are you based? Are you in the office or at home? Surely you're at home. Omicron, etc. Yeah, exactly. No, it was, it's all home working now, which um, <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but everything seems to have completely changed. And um, actually, I think that's partly what's driven our approach in healthcare as well. Everyone's working remotely now. So that's been part of our focus for the clinical frontline too. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I'm mean, definitely going to get into this with Bleeper, aren't we? So first of all, though, where we start these is for you to tell your story. So I'm super interested in this. You and I have moved in similar circles quite a long time. We we're just talking off air, weren't we? Like, we don't actually really know each other. I don't think we've ever actually spoken, although we kind of feel like we know each other. So it'd be interesting to fill in the gaps. But by all means, so why don't you tell us a bit of your story? Yeah, sure. So um, I went to medical school in Southampton, did a intercalated degree in immunology and um, nutrition, largely because I wasn't quite sure which bit of uh, medicine I was really interested in. Two things that medical school does not teach you, by the way, like very well at all. I know. I've actually just had my um, my first child as well, and I realised that being a doctor doesn't really equip you for uh, raising a, an infant. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations, and no, it does not. No. <laughs> uh. Yeah, you kind of learn how to uh, look after them when they're unwell, but not how to keep them well in the first place. <laughs> uh, you could. I mean, that is a metaphor for the lack of preventative medicine generally, and I suppose public health in adult medicine as well. But um, I suppose without going too much into that metaphor, I'll let you continue. Yeah, yeah and, and actually, I, I really love studying medicine. It's a fascinating subject. And um, unfortunately for me, this, the practicing of it wasn't as interesting as the studying of it. And um, mm. when I actually became a, a clinician, one of the things I, I really missed was the sort of um, creativity side of things that you you had at uni. Uh, so I was quite into research when I was at uni. And in fact, my F1 and F2 years were as an academic foundation officer um, at Oxford University Hospitals Trust, where I did a bit of clinical lecturing, uh, largely in anatomy, and then also uh, looked at various types of um, research outlet, mostly in the field of orthopedics, actually. Um, that kind of took my fancy. I started to get into the mechan mechanical engineering, the sort of biomechanics side of stuff, nice. which was, um, yeah, fascinating. And interestingly, though, I didn't decide to become an orthopedic surgeon. I actually went into um, radiology, I think, in hindsight, because I thought that's where all the interesting tech was. And I thought that's where I could have a bit of a creative outlet. So like the interventional stuff? 
Yeah, ex- exactly. And uh, I had dallied in uh, sort of medical devices whilst at university. In fact, I I came up with a, a medical device in my uh, fourth year at university and got a bit of pump priming money from Southampton Uni to take it forwards and worked oh, on it for cool. a couple of what years. Was it? It, it's actually um, an alternative for male catheterization. It was something called Iodom. And it was an antiseptic covered condom, essentially, with a terrible tip. And it was to replace those trays with the drapes. What a great idea. Yeah, <laughs> really good. And in fact, I took it all the way up to a meeting with um, Medtronic, who were potentially interested in acquiring it. And uh, for various reasons, that that didn't end up happening. Uh, and I ended up getting into the midst of radiology exams. And by that point, it all kind of wound down. But oh. yeah, so I've always, I've always been interested in <laughs> in that side of stuff that is such a that is such a good idea man honestly yeah i know it's just such a fiddly process forgive the imagery in the word there but like it really is yeah and and those packs they are quite expensive about three pounds seventy you could manufacture an iodom for about 0.2 of a penny and um of course you can put hundreds of them in a box in the same amount of space as it would take for one pack so yeah, even the storage saving is is pretty good. Very interesting mm. insight into both medical device development, clinical evidence gathering, and then trying to sell your product to um, medical device companies. It's a very interesting uh, early insight. It's no walk in the park, is it? No, <laughs> but um, but fascinating, uh, fascinating process, and um, it was sort of the beginning of my kind of entrepreneurial interest, and if anything show me that this is actually really what I wanted to be doing. Nice. And I was quite lucky to discover that quite early on in my my medical journey. But uh, yeah, anyway, I ended up thinking, oh, radiology looked like the most interesting specialty to me. I thought there was quite a lot I could do on the interventional side. And um, so I took up a post, went down to Peninsula, down in the southwest and it was interesting because i'd actually chosen to go there because my uh, my family had moved down to devon so it was it was quite a nice, nice area i also quite like being outdoors quite like surfing so it seemed like a really good location to be oh, um perfect <laughs> problem was i met my now wife um three days after i'd submitted that option to go down there and she lived oh. in london <laughs> <laughs> And so I spent the next two years trying to get an interdeanery transfer that uh, nice. obviously was quite difficult to do because London's a bit more competitive than Peninsula. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I, I decided, well, I was going to keep looking at options. And then uh, Tony Young developed the NHS England Clinical Entrepreneur Fellowship, which initially was meant to be a funded role. And so I decided, right, I was going to go for an outer training um, career break. I was going to come up to London, take this fellowship, and uh, and go from there. And unfortunately, the funding for that disappeared, and so I got a yeah. very difficult call from Tony um, two weeks before starting the Entrepreneur Fellowship, saying funding's not there. You've got two choices, really. You can either come up to London and you can do the fellowship and we'll support you but there's just no salary for it or you can go back into your training program and we'll try and find some some way around it the problem was I'd already told my wife I was coming to London so I, <laughs> the decision yeah. was already made yeah and so up, up to London I came and I I ended up having to set up my own uh, consultancy to startups and, and medical tech companies without really knowing what i was doing that's modest you say that you're taking something <laughs> to medtronic after building it manufacturing it you know there's a lot of knowledge there you could sell 
<laughs> well, kind of you to say. It, it didn't feel like it at the time. Um, <laughs> it never does. Everyone's faking it, man. <laughs> it never does. No, no, that's true. That's true. And so I, I spent a fascinating 18 months working with all sorts of startups that were trying to yeah. sell into healthcare, everything from 3D printing through to um, wow. cybersecurity, um, teleconsults, that, that sort of thing. And um, <laughs> it, was, it was a real entrepreneurial uh, journey. So I went from the, the nice registrar salary to earning about 12000 I think, in that first year. Um, and of course, living tax in tax-free though. It depends on your structure, but <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, true, true. <laughs> and the, but living in one of the most expensive cities in the world, it was a bit of a uh, uh, yeah, a not ideal. <laughs> yeah, not ideal. Yeah, and that was uh, but but one of the most enjoyable eighteen months of, of my life. Actually, just fascinating working with these companies and really also trying to understand the NHS from the other side of the fence. Because when you're a clinician, yeah. you kind of sat there looking at it, but. No one ever teaches you about procurement and um, IT and, and and all the hurdles that you've got to go through to bring a product in. That's awesome, man. A d- quick question before we go on. I, I mean, it's probably a rhetorical one, to be honest, but do you think you would be where you are now or as happy as you are now or, or have, have found your calling as much as you have now had it not have had your hand not have been forced so much by I must move to London, I've got literally no other opportunity. I've picked what's top of my priority, which is moving to London for the sake of my love and life and happiness. And so therefore, I'm just going to make the work work. Um, Had your hand not have been forced so much, do you think you'd be where you are now? Uh, Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think I would have made the jump but it may have happened later and I may have yeah. made the jump after becoming a consultant probably interesting whereas I made the jump in the middle of my ST training so mm. did that feel too early no actually in in you get very mixed advice when you're looking at alternative careers <laughs> as a clinician <laughs> and I don't know if you had the same but everyone tells you if you don't become a consultant you won't have any credibility you won't be able to um sell the product with it with any sort of conviction and actually i do, i just don't think that's true mm. what i realized was actually being a consultant does give you a unique perspective because you've gone that further uh, that much further in your career but fundamentally you're really there because you have subspecialist knowledge about a particular field once you're a doctor you're a doctor once you've worked on the wards you've worked on the wards you kind of know what the IT's like, what the pain points are like, what people are struggling with. Um, and so I I think you know enough about clinical practice to be able to add value. I don't think you need to go through to being a consultant. Um, other people will give you different advice. Exactly. Based on their experience, their views, and, and, and what they've been through, my experience is the same as yours, just for clarity there. I would also say, and maybe this is slightly controversial, but a lot of clinicians are quite risk averse uh, from my experience and they want to get the stable career the steady fallback if it all goes wrong the safety net and the one thing i've learned is unless you jump with both feet you'll not succeed in the other side of this so i think had i tried to do a, a sort of more phase transition where i continued with a couple of days of clinical practice and tried to build an entrepreneurial pathway uh, unless you have a really decent co-founder 
who can mm. do a lot of the heavy lifting and doesn't mind you being part-time i don't think it works um i certainly couldn't run feedback um if i wasn't doing it full-time you know the only person that i know that retains plenty of clinical work is is chris from timber health you might know actually from the clinical entrepreneur program yes yeah he's the only one that I mean, he, he may or may not now, but I know when he when he came on this podcast and when I've spoken to him a couple of times, when I've seen him at the RSM, like he's yeah he's been heavily doing GP like quite a lot of the week, and still managed to do it. But he's the only one. Uh, like uh, as as you rightly say, I think jumping with two feet seems to me in my study of two hundred and fifty people on this podcast, or whatever, however many of them are clinicians, but it seems to be that that that's the formula for for the success certainly i i think you have to you have to commit and you have to have conviction in your vision and what you're trying to achieve i mean both both careers are all consuming right healthcare practicing as a doctor it, it takes everything you've got and you're you're knackered you're working all the hours um and it's emotionally stressful and draining but actually being a ceo and running a company is equally <laughs> all the hours under the sun emotionally draining <laughs> very tiring um you you can't do both well i don't think <laughs> oh, i i agree the interesting thing is as well like you sort of swap one hell for the other but the the, the hell that i've chosen latterly just gives me the illusion of control <laughs> like <I'm, laughs> certainly at least at least the illusion that i'm in control of everything rather than an arbitrary rotor which for some reason keeps me a bit happier but no i i agree and it's different strokes right it really is it was funny when you started and you said um that you loved you loved studying medicine i thought you were going to want you thought you were going to go on to say that you loved practicing medicine too and i was going to be jealous of that fact almost that you managed to enjoy the practicing way because uh, that's the way i feel about the people that that practice medicine and love it is that i, I in so many ways i wish i was that because it, it would have made me it would have kept me in my risk averse lovely safe you know career and all the rest of it i think it really is um i wish i loved it i really do but as i say in in my current hell i have the illusion of control <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean i i don't know about you i i loved elements of it I, I really loved spending time with patients, but infrequently, well, <laughs> because actually you don't get to spend a huge amount of time with patients, which is the, the, the irony. Mm. I hated the perpetual exam cycle and also being told you have to wait in order to progress. It just seems so arbitrary. Um, and ultimately, I think it was a decision you make when you're 18. You want to go to med school, you want to do this. I mean, we all become very different people as we grow older. And for me, it was it was still it was the right decision. It's led me to where I am today. But it it wasn't for the career I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I feel similar. I actually just wasn't very good at the exams. <laughs> that's that's basically what it was for me. That's why that's why I that's why I fundamentally struggled. I just oh yeah, one of, the, one of those things. Anyway, before we get too much into this. Yeah, let's talk, let's talk about feedback. How, how did it how did it start? Feedback and I I remember actually being on LinkedIn and and watching Bleeper develop. I, I sort of saw that story develop for from it being at its inception, basically, and being announced and seeing your name as part of it, obviously, and all the rest of it, and it led me to looking into what is what is feedback, what is what's a PLC, what's that, what are they doing here? This is all quite interesting. There's something to do with medical imaging going on as well, and now they've got Bleeper and this guy. So, like, what's going? So, it's a super interesting, unusual 
structure and, and group of companies and Bleepa now and yourself. So yeah, talk to us about how did you get that role? And yeah, what was it that you went into? What's this, uh, what's feedback all about? Yeah, it, it is an unusual story and it's it's an unusual company. Um, as mm. you said, most SMEs are not listed on AIM as publicly traded companies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and in many respects, I'm not actually your typical founder. I haven't, I didn't mm. found the company. In fact, the feedback is a 20 year old medical device company. It was a PAX company initially and um, had been a, a pretty small but high quality business for that entire period. Um, we, in fact, were selling pack systems to four NHS customers. They hadn't really expanded the footprint beyond that. And I, I don't know how well you know the PACS industry, but it's dominated by very large players, you know, Siemens, sure. Philips, GE, those, those sorts of companies. And for this little tiny company to have held four NHS customers for that period was, was quite remarkable uh, and, yeah. a, and a testament to, to the quality of the technology that was there. And... So I kind of joined feedback and I had a I had a real running start with it because of this legacy technology. And I, I realized we could do quite a lot with it in quite a short space of time if we came at it with fresh eyes and and thought about it slightly differently. And my route to becoming chief executive was um <laughs> unintentional, let's say. So I had just left a role with another company called Doctor Care Anywhere, where I had been helping to set up a telemedicine. Um, offering into the NHS long before COVID. And if only we'd known what was around the corner, I'm sure that would have been a very successful... Um, <laughs> Funding uh, conversations uh, would have gone a lot easier, I imagine. Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly right. <laughs> um, but we still set up, interestingly, we set up a telemedicine pilot in the Southwest for 40,000 patients um, funded by the CCG uh, in 100 days, which was pretty wow. good going. That's pretty good going indeed. That was actually when I realised you can do stuff in the NHS if you know how to do it and if you're dogmatic and persistent and you. Yeah, good for you. you. Yeah, we did. I was still very proud of what we managed to do there. But I just left that role, uh, and I was actually applying to be a non-exec director of one of the academic health science networks. Um, mm. And then the chairman of that AHSN was also the chairman of Feedback. I remember halfway through the interview, they just stopped and just said, "Look." I'm sure you could do this role. I'm sure you'd be very good at it. But actually, I have something far more interesting <laughs> that I want to talk to you about. That, um, that this... is funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like I have this portfolio company that um, has great technology but doesn't really have a vision of where it's going. Can you come and have a look at it and let me know what you think? And so initially, it started off as a consultancy gig. So I, I went to have a look at the company, looked at the technology, and... Um, then actually a conversation evolved where they said, well, look, this is a great idea. Why don't you come and run it? We'll see how we go. So I started off as the um, chief executive of the operating company, so not the public company. Yeah. So underneath PLC, there is another company called Feedback Medical Limited, which basically is the operating vehicle. And mm -hmm. if I was successful in that sort of probationary role and we started to see movement, then they would make me chief executive of the public company um and that's that's essentially what, what happened so i when i joined feedback um the thing that really struck me was that they had very deep-seated medical device expertise that they 
obviously coming from a PAX background, they already had um, class one and class two A medical device certification. They were looking at FDA certification for for um, various products, and at the time they also had a, a, a product called Texrad that was a, what we call a radiomics tool, and it's basically a foundation AI tool. You can put a region of interest on a CT scan, and it will give you a histogram plot and tell you. Um, based on the shape of that histogram, what sort of tissue changes are present within it. So quite rudimentary AI, but also very exciting. Mm. So I realised underneath the hood here, there's there's some really good stuff. We can do a lot with it. My observation from practising as a doctor was that one area we really struggle with is communication. And particularly, I had witnessed a number of episodes where that had a failure of communication had led to patient harm. That also related to my role in radiology down in the southwest, where I realised that it was really difficult to push images from one hospital to another. So not only was it difficult for me to talk to colleagues in the same hospital, let alone trying to talk to colleagues in a different hospital, and even harder for me to then have a discussion around an image. So and I remember I had a, a stroke case when I was on call. We needed to get up the road to Bristol, and we couldn't send the images through the image exchange portal it was going to take about two and a half hours to push those images. And so we actually decided faster to burn the image to a CD, put it on the patient, send the patient in an ambulance down the road. And I just looked at this and I remember thinking, this isn't good enough. We can do better than this. Um, mm. And so that was really the, the sort of founding driver for me thinking, well, what could we do? And so I looked at the PAC system we had, um, CADRAN, and I said, well, what happens if we built a secure messaging system around this um, with video calling capabilities. And we could actually make, we, I, I realized we, we've got the ability to move imaging around and to display imaging at a, a medical device grade quality, which is important for clinical review. And then I said, well, what, if we were to build messaging around this and video calling capabilities, and actually we could get a clinical grade version of WhatsApp, that is regulatory compliant would allow us to have asynchronous conversations about our patients uh, and I think would be quite revolutionary. Now, there was uh, at the time already a, a quite a few companies that were WhatsApp replacements, pager replacements, um, but yeah. none of them had the ability to share medical imaging. And, and I can see your edge. I can definitely, yes. yeah, as soon as you said what CAD, like it's out of the box, right? You, you, the value proposition's there, the technology's yep. there. Nice. And, you know, an image says a thousand words and there's a reason we image our patients because we want to see what's going on inside them so we can make a decision. Of course. And so it seemed only logical to bring good quality imaging into patient conversation. I don't know if you have a similar experience from when you were a junior doctor, but I, I remember many nights where actually you were operating right at the edge of your comfort zone and experience level and it would have been really useful to have been able to get senior advice and guidance easily. You page someone, they're not responding or, or they're in the middle of an operation or, or something like that. They can't get to you. And actually being able to communicate in an asynchronous way to be able to send a text message to a colleague or a, a WhatsApp message to a colleague and just to be able to have them review that, come back to you with advice and guidance, it, it would have been transformative. But the technology we rely on for frontline clinical delivery are telephones, pages, fax machines, and email, which are neither secure nor particularly timely. And um, 
God, I, I still, every time I hear that pager noise, I still flinch. <laughs> and the problem with so pages are... I you... touch my back right pocket every time, <laughs> even now. You know, if a, if a lorry reverses, I touch my back right pocket, like, every time. <laughs> or my yeah. front left, like, wherever my scroll... Like, it's just... Ah, uh, yeah, funny. It, it's, it, it's difficult to describe for people who haven't practiced clinically, but you don't... When you hear that beep, Beep. You're you're going. I have no idea whether that is for a cardiac arrest where I'm going to have to drop everything and run, or whether it's for a drug chart that probably could wait until the morning. And yeah. it's such a blunt means of getting someone's attention. And I think one of the things that we realised quite early on with Bleeper is that actually the majority of clinical communication doesn't need an emergency bleep for it. And actually, it would be much easier if you could finish a task you were doing with a patient in front of you then look at your phone and see oh i've been requested to do x y and z or this person's asked for this bit of advice and actually it's safer all around because then i can focus on what i'm doing and if my pager does go off i know it's for something serious it's for a cardiac arrest um for the mental health of staff as well i honestly i just think that is such an important point you just raised about being able to just focus on what you're doing, knowing that nothing urgent is going on, and those yes. things can build up. I think it's so tough, isn't it, when you're a junior? Yeah, I can remember my first day and night on 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 ward cover medical. Like the bleep goes off so often that you cannot get through a task without it going off two or three times. And you're absolutely right. Are these two or three things really? serious or not and especially when you're junior you don't even have the ability to prioritize once you do know the information so someone's warfarin needs dosing yep. is that urgent like could that wait like how long can that wait like can someone else do it like and you still yep. don't know so you have these every time that bleep goes like you just have these spikes of adrenaline and cortisol and all these things running through you that just your heightened state of mess <laughs> for so much of it that you're yeah. right. The prioritization of that that's going on without you having a physiological response, oh man, would have solved me from a lot of you mentioned it before, the 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 emotional burden of being a ground floor clinician, you know. It, it that that's what got me as well a lot when I was a junior, the the emotion side of it and how draining that was. And yeah, all of these things would have helped, hundred percent. Yeah, and uh, it's also uh, I, whenever someone paid you and you'd go to the phone and then you you sort of scribble down some notes about what they were talking about which patient it was and you put it onto a piece of paper that invariably would get lost or would be in your back pocket and so what so much of clinical decision making and clinical discussion happens outside of the epr and the patient notes and it isn't captured anywhere or it's captured on stray bits of paper that never make it into the patient's medical record and and so there's also a safety and equality element of this too, in that if you told me on the phone to do something and I went and did it, I haven't really got any evidence as to why that's happened. And if that patient then came to harm, how can I I can't really say, well, nobody's <laughs> direct told me to yeah. do this. And, yeah, yeah. Um and I think also, particularly when we have staff who are coming from all over the world and who don't necessarily have English as their first language, being really clear around the instructions that you're giving, information you're sharing and having it in a written format is really important because otherwise things mm -hmm. can get misconstrued. And 
I remember when I was a junior doctor in my A&E rotation, I was looking after a patient who had a fracture and it was a very busy day and the consultant came and basically said, look, you've diagnosed it, the um, AMP can do the plastering, I need you to go and look at this patient, can you move them into minors and can you just document what it is you want them to do? And I did, um, and I, there was a little form in the, the A&E waiting, uh, the, the A&E office and that's where you had to write what the instructions were and I wrote it down and there was a misconception around what I'd asked for and what the AMP eventually delivered and it didn't actually affect the patient but when the orthopedic registrar came down, they looked at what the AMP had done and said, well, this is the, the not the right cast. Why have you done this? And blah, blah, blah. And they said, well, this is what the doctor wrote. And it turned out actually they'd read the wrong note for the wrong patient and they, someone else had handed over a, a cast and they'd done, so they, they'd mixed it up. But that was a communication breakdown um, that happened because of a senior clinician telling me to go and do something else without really an appropriate method for communicating that information and handover to another colleague. And this is this is how harm comes into things and, and how things go wrong for patients. So I, I'm really passionate that we have a robust means of communicating that's also captured and auditable and does all the things that we need it to, to protect ourselves, to protect the trust from litigation, but fundamentally to stop patients coming to harm in the first place. And that's the value of communication. My question then is, where is messaging between clinicians now? Where are we with this? Because you're right, legacy systems exist. We've heard, was it Matt Hancock that wanted to get rid of the bleeps in some clever phrase? been the bleeps or something i don't know something along those lines for a, a, purge the pager and, and axe the facts <laughs> purge the pager axe the facts right okay yeah but where yeah where are we now because obviously bleep exists and, and you can tell me about where it exists and, and what your scale is like for you there are other messaging platforms and startups that are doing not too dissimilar stuff but certainly different functionality based on your experience with your previous platforms so is this coming in now is asynchronous communication between clinicians helping? Is it, Does it exist? What's the future like? Are we going to purge the pages? And I'm not even going to say this. I don't know. Not, are we going to get rid yeah. of bleeps? Let's just go with that. <laughs> clinicians have already been adopting this way of working independently of what the central government and the Department of Health have said. We know from a BMJ survey in, I think it was 2018, that 97% of clinical communication happens on WhatsApp. Yeah. Which is a slightly terrifying statistic. Uh, and, and there are lots of problems with, with the use of WhatsApp. We can go into them if you want, but fundamentally... I'm interested because I was going to say, like, is it terrifying because it works? Question mark. Well, this is this is the thing. I'm, from a clinician's perspective, this is brilliant. This is actually solving the problem that we've just described for the last five minutes or so. And it's allowing them to practice in the way that they want to work. I mean, we do everything on our mobile phones in the rest of our life. Why on earth shouldn't we communicate via our mobile phones in clinical practice. The difficulty with it is that if information about a patient resides in WhatsApp, that breaches GDPR in a number of ways. Firstly, hmm. you can't control where that data is processed. And if it's through WhatsApp, often it's processed on servers in the US and in other territories outside of the EU and the UK, which obviously breaches a whole load of NHS data governance rules. You also can't really control who accesses and sees that. You can easily forward it on inappropriately to other contacts. And fundamentally, the patient can't ask you to erase 
that data. Um, and medically, legally, mm. from a hospital's perspective, if that conversation happens in an encrypted conversation on WhatsApp and something happens to the patient, then actually the decision that led to the incident for the patient has happened outside of the EPR uh, and therefore can't be used in the defence of the hospital. So from a litigation perspective, there's a problem. The other problem, and I come at this slightly with a radiology focus, and it's partly why Bleeper's USP is really around the imaging side of this, mm-hmm. If you are using a digital patient image for any sort of diagnostic purpose, and that is defined as anything that includes clinical conversation, anything that could influence the care of a patient uh, would be diagnostic use. Under UK legislation, you have to be using a CE marked image viewer. So you have to be seeing those images in a DICOM image viewer. And if you aren't, what a lot of people don't realise is that you are essentially using what should be a medical device off-licence. And as a clinician, that means you accept responsibility and liability for any decision that you make off that platform. So if you are looking at an x-ray on WhatsApp or some of the other um, platforms that are available and you use that to make a decision about that patient and it goes wrong, you're liable. What's also interesting is that your employing trust are also liable and have an obligation under the CQC to provide you with appropriate technology to fulfill that role. So it has a lot of implications, and this is why quality imaging is is so important. So how do you do, how do you solve that problem with Bleeper then? So essentially, what we do is we bring in a Pax image viewer into a patient conversation. So. The other thing that's unique about Bleeper is rather than just allowing you to have a conversation, so a group chat where you could talk about multiple patients, in Bleeper, everything relates to an individual patient. So you can only talk about one patient at a time. And as a result of that, the whole discussion, it becomes part of a new auditable record that links back to EPR for that patient. So we capture that clinical conversation and it becomes part of a patient's medical record as standard. And it also means from a safety perspective, you can't get confused around which patient you're talking about. A single decision relates to a single patient and so it's it's safety by design and going back to your original question around the use of these platforms covid has been really interesting from our perspective because it's actually shown why you need this kind of technology and originally we were presenting bleeper as a really a, a tool for capturing the conversation but really supporting junior doctors because it makes it easier to get senior advice and guidance but covid actually flipped that and what we had were a whole load of senior clinicians who had health risks or um, were vulnerable and had to shield because of covid interesting but we needed their expertise and guidance back to frontline clinicians to support the junior doctors that were left with the patients uh, and so we actually ended up running the COVID-19 pathway for um, Oldham Hospital up in Manchester. And we were able to allow senior clinicians to give advice and guidance to junior doctors uh, and even to manage referrals and entire care pathways using Bleeper from home. Um, we had one consultant actually who went back to be with their family in India and was able to provide respiratory pathway advice and guidance from India to Manchester using our platform which amazing was was a game changer uh, and really showed the importance of how you can practice and actually as a result of that we've now uh, installed bleeper at five different nhs sites and we're looking at onboarding more but we've also started to move out of just supplying bleeper as a communication platform for individual trusts to how can you have a conversation around a patient across provider settings so How can you have a conversation between a GP and a hospital specialist around an individual patient? And this has really dovetailed quite nicely with the community diagnostic centres that are being set up across the UK as a way of reducing the elective care backlog. And 
what we are essentially able to do with Bleeper is to have a conversation with a GP at one end and a hospital specialist at another. And we can actually pull in the diagnostic results that are happening in these community diagnostic centers and centralize it into that patient episode. So what Bleeper has really become is a tool that allows you to have a conversation with everyone you need to talk to, but also a point where you can see all the information relating to a patient all in one place. And you can do that on your mobile phone. So you can do it on the go. So Bleeper has evolved over the last 18 months to two years to become a tool that will show you not just medical imaging, but blood results, histopathology reports, other types of structured data, patient photos, ECGs, you know, you name it, we can bring it in and show it to you, but all in one place. You don't have to go and log into six or seven different hospital systems to find this information. With Bleeper, you log into the patient, you can see everything you need to see, and you can talk to everyone you need to talk to. And that's the mm-hmm. real power of what we're, what we're delivering. And interestingly, this has led us into a, a slightly different area around data management. And we have developed a, a cloud architecture called CareLocker. And essentially, rather than having one big cloud that has lots of patients' data in it, we actually generate essentially a cloud for every patient. So at a population level, if you've got mm-hmm. one and a half million patients, say, in Surrey, then actually we can produce 1.5 million clouds that hold those patients' data in their own archive linked to their NHS number that can then be made accessible to any healthcare setting. That is a really interesting side feature of what we've, what we've been developing. And that has led to some really interesting conversations with some fascinating companies. And in fact, AWS have just made an investment in the company, given some funding for us to do some work, not actually in the NHS, but in India, um, which we can mm. talk about in a minute. It's like tangent but same technology yeah yeah awesome it's interesting to me just the i suppose the ease at which you talk about the clinical problems and how bleep is built to relate you you mentioned there about pathways for example and you don't talk about solving any problem in isolation which i think is quite nice i think when it comes to the sort of point and shoot solutions for handover or for you know whatsapp for doctors or for this or for that you know the point and shoot is you know a way to solve problems but i guess the way that you're talking about it is far more end-to-end and i think rather than shying away from the things that you're uncovering as you pull that thread you're actually leaning into them perfect example being the new cloud architecture where you've got individual clouds per patient you know you could quite easily just work around that But instead, it's like, no, actually, let's lean into this and build something for quality. And I think that it's it's an interesting one that I've I see. I'm just seeing this and feeling this quite a lot at the minute that when you're involved in NHS conversations like you are and, and trying to sell, it can so often be about cost and how cheap and just a race to the bottom of cost and cheap and saving money and that tends to be the only conversation you end up having for so long but to turn it around and start talking about quality i think is it we're at at a point now where that's starting to become a thing more so i think it's less about just how cheap can this possibly be for someone to buy it it is at least in part now more about quality and i think just the way that you talk the way that you have quiet competence of of so much of this because of your background as a clinician and clearly a problem solver and clearly someone that's lent into a lot of this knowledge and, and wanting to learn about devices and, and cloud architectures and all the rest of it. It just strikes me as quite a nice offering, you know, that that it's not it's not a point and shoot. It's actually end to end. And 
incorporates quite a lot of of uh, acquired knowledge over time and and also that of the future in something like care locker as well it feels nice yeah well thank you it's, it's nice to hear those sorts of it it's the, the thing with it is that being able to solve those sort of longitudinal problems around clinical pathways and patients it's mm. it's great and fascinating and but it also is a more difficult sell because we then have huge numbers of stakeholders yes each of whom have got different pinch points and we are solving them but yeah. it makes it a very complex sales structure and actually in the community space where you're going across primary and secondary care and now you have the ICSs coming in as well the pool of decision makers we're having to approach is getting ever bigger but we aren't shying away from that because we know it's the solution that that works and we know it's it's the right thing and I, I think the the fact that we're going to be working with um, Sussex ICS to really develop this patient-specific end-to-end pathway linked to a decentralized patient-specific cloud store it is testament to the fact that actually people are beginning to recognize the value of this. And as we move away from traditional care structures and we start to be more patient-centric, regionally focused you are going to need a, dis- a different digital infrastructure. I often say this, and it's a little bit cheesy, but clinical care is really just a rolling conversation between specialists about a patient culminating in a decision. And if you can facilitate that conversation, present the information that they need to have that discussion, and then capture the decision, you've essentially delivered what we need to do. And, and that's, mm. that is what Bleeper and CareLocker do. Final question from me, mate, before we wrap up. How close are we then to asynchronous communication with something like bleeper being the norm i we're getting there the difficulty is the nhs and as as i'm sure you'll you'll have found as well it's a bit of a misnomer it, it isn't there isn't a single nhs it's actually a thousand different organizations that all pull in slightly different directions and i remember i can't remember who it was but i remember someone describing it to me and it's such a good analogy it's a bit like you're in a helicopter over the sea and you see what you think is a whale and then actually it turns out to be a school of fish. And as you get closer, they all go in different directions. <laughs> so I think that we can make a very good case now that this is how clinicians could work, that the technology really can transform their working lives and improve patient safety and also drive efficiency. And we have use cases now where we can show asynchronous MDT. In fact, at Pennine, where we originally deployed Bleeper, they are using it for asynchronous rolling MDT discussions. And they have reduced the number of in-person and video MDT calls that they need as a result. And uh, in fact, it's taken the decision, the mean decision-making time from about 2.4 days to about 0.4 days for a patient. And that, that is a, a big driver of efficiency. We also know that we save from about 36.3 weeks of clinical time per team per year just because of the asynchronous comms. So these are these are big savings, and particularly when we're faced with a, a sort of backdrop of staff shortages and uh, an ever-growing backlog of patients, anything that drives efficiency at the same time as safety has got to be a, a no-brainer, right? So that's absolutely. Uh, I think we are getting close. We have some really good real-world use cases. We're getting interest from central bodies within the NHS, but the NHS is notoriously difficult to expand and scale technology. So. We don't underestimate the challenge ahead of us either. I think the community diagnostic centres will be a real trigger for this because essentially it's creating a brand new healthcare setting for the first time in a generation. And so we have the ability now to say, well, look, take this brand new healthcare setting and plug it into primary and secondary care 
using the right digital infrastructure. And here we go. So I, I, I think we have a silver bullet in the CDCs if they're done in the right way um, that will really accelerate the adoption. So I think we are close. I do think we're close. Tom, it's been a pleasure, my friend. I think I'll probably just end by saying it sounds like as someone much cleverer than me says, you know, the, f- the future's already here. It's just not very well distributed. I think it strikes me that the responsibility to distribute it lies on both sides of the table here, the supply side and the demand side. You know, it's up to the startups to make it easy to distribute and scale. But there's also some responsibility centrally and there's some responsibility on the infrastructure side. When you talk about decentralized platforms, for example, that enable patients to hold their own data or individual clouds or whatever it is, there's clearly infrastructure responsibility. There's clearly responsibility of those buying. There's clearly responsibility of policymakers to make sure that those buying are incentivized to buy the right things that are going to change things for the better. But similarly, like you are, you're taking responsibility as an entrepreneur and you're building your business in the right way and, and your product in the right way to, to make it appealing to everybody. So I think like with a lot of things, we're only going to get there if everybody pulls in the same direction. And I think that none more so, I think, than than these communication issues. If we're going to put bleeps in the bin or ax, whatever he said, like, you know, if we're going to do all that stuff, it's not about these sorts of slogans. It's actually about the hard work behind it that goes into it. And that is the responsibility of, I think, quite a lot of different people around the table that are working incredibly hard to do so. But mate, as I say, it's been an absolute pleasure hearing about what you're up to and and actually meeting you. And uh, yeah, I look forward to catching up over a coffee or a beer in London at some point. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Thanks so much. It's been great. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.